This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, Two announcements, I would say, in regards to this sermon. Uh, The first is I'm not very happy with it. Um, That being said, I think there's pure gold in it. And so I would hope that you'd be willing to work hard to find that gold. Uh, Second... um, We put the text in your worship folder and gave you an entire page uh, in the insert for you to take notes, and that's because there's going to be a lot of points and sub-points this morning, and uh, hopefully you can uh, take some notes. I'm even going to recommend in the sermon that you listen to it again for the parts where you fell asleep and started to drool, uh, because that may be where the gold was. Uh, But at any rate, we're we're walking through uh, a series right now called Psalms, Worship in Every Circumstance. And we've said that the Psalter provides us with a prayer book that will lead us into the worship of God regardless of what's happening in our lives, regardless of said circumstances. And right now we're in the genre of repentance. Uh, We're learning uh, from the Psalms of repentance how to worship God, how to approach God when we're experiencing a low in life uh, due to our sins. Uh, Last week, we studied Psalm 32, which we said was not a prayer of repentance, but was a contemplation on and instruction in repentance. Uh, Psalm 32, uh, David pleads with us that we would, in dealing with our sins, abandon the path of the irreligious and the religious, and that we would pursue the path of repentance. If you you were not here, I'll just tell you summarily that in Psalm 32, David says that the repentant are blessed. And while he certainly means more than this, he primarily means this, that the repentant are happy. 
They're glad. They're joyful. They're energized. They're hopeful. And so we said last week when studying that contemplation on repentance that this week we'd study an actual prayer of repentance, that we'd study an actual prayer that David prayed when low because of his own sin. Remember, the Psalter is going to teach us how to deal with low places brought into our lives by natural circumstances or by the sins of others. But the Psalms of repentance are all about us being low because we blew it. We included in the worship folder and in the reading this morning the title for Psalm 51, which in part says this, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance after his epic fail recorded in 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11 uh, tells the story of David sending his army out into war while he stayed at home. While all the other men are fighting for Israel, David is lazily laying on the couch. Late one afternoon, he finally gets up, and he goes for a walk on his roof. And from that exalted position, he sees a woman bathing. The text said she's a woman purifying herself from her period of uncleanness. The narrator is telling us that she's ovulating, and she's susceptible David, after inquiring, finds out that this is Bathsheba and that her husband is Uriah the Hittite. And we know from Scripture that Uriah the Hittite was one of David's 30 or so mighty men. As such, Uriah had shown incredible loyalty and sacrificial love to David earlier in David's life when David was being pursued by by King Saul. Uriah had proven himself over decades to be a good and trusted friend. And even with this information in his mind, David sent his servants to, quote, take, kidnap Bathsheba. And to one degree or another, David forced himself upon her and impregnated her. Bathsheba is utterly passive in all of 2 Samuel 11. The NIV says at the top of Psalm 51, this is when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Adultery would presume two active partners. The Hebrew says what the ESV reads, which is, this is what David wrote after Nathan confronted him when he went into Bathsheba. In an effort to cover that up, David sends for Uriah under the pretense of wanting a report on the battle. But what he really wanted was to have Uriah make love with Bathsheba and forever think that the child in her womb was his. Uriah, after reporting in, he refuses to sleep with his wife, and he feels as though it would not be fair to his comrades who are out in the battlefield risking their lives. And so the next night, David gets him utterly drunk, and and he tries to loosen his morals and send him home. And Uriah still maintains his character, his loyalty, and his self-control. What's a man to do? So David connives in cold blood have Uriah killed in battle by having his commander Joab send Uriah and his men into an impossible mission that would certainly kill him. And so piled upon her pain and her shame from what David had done to her, the text says that the death of her sacrificial husband and her noble lover caused Bathsheba unspeakable grief. And in the end, not only was she victimized, And not only was her godly husband dead, she was again brought to the house of David 
to the house of the abuser and the murderer to be his wife. In one of the greatest understatements in the history of literature, 2 Samuel 11 closes this way. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. Epic fail. So 2 Samuel 11 is David's sin, and in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet is sent by God to him. And Psalm 51 is David's repentance after Nathan storied him into seeing and feeling the weight of his sin. And then Psalm 32, last week's sermon, was written sometime later after this entire episode as David contemplates on repentance and forgiveness. In Psalm 51, David is low and crushed, verse 8, verse 17. He asks for God to give him joy and gladness, verse 8, verse 12. In Psalm 32, David says that God has blessed him. He's happied him. He's made him glad. In our psalm, he says, make me dance. In Psalm 32, it says God made him dance. The entirety of Psalm 51, our psalm for today, is the repentance that brought about that blessedness. And regardless of what you've done, If you haven't caught on on yet, repentance is crucial in the Christian's life. Not only is repentance uh, the means by which God restores us to himself and gives us intimacy with him, repentance, we're told, over and over makes happiness in the heart. Repentance also brings the power for transformation into our lives. We change when we repent. We're happy after repenting. Repentance connects us to God. It's huge. And so if repentance is crucial, what is it? What's it comprised of? What are its parts? We're going to learn from Psalm 51 that repentance is at least three things. Realization, supplication, expectation. We're going to work our way through Psalm 51, and we're going to see from a grammatical perspective that David prays three different types of prayers He prays prayers of realization, prayers of supplication, and prayers of expectation. So first, repentance includes prayers of realization. So from a grammatical perspective, we're going to consider all of the factual statements David makes in this psalm. Uh, They are found in verses 3 through 5 and verses 16 and 17. And I want you to know in advance that in these verses, we're going to see that repentance includes the following four realizations. I'm wrong according to your standard. I am without excuse. I can't fake it nor fix it. And my goal is a crushed heart. So first realization, I'm wrong according to your standard. So listen to these statements uh, in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. These are statements in the Hebrew. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Five times in verses one through three, David uses the word my. It's a word for ownership. With transgression, David says, I willfully rebelled. With iniquity, David says, I'm culpable and I'm guilty. With sin, he's saying, I missed the mark. I I did not live up to the standard. In verse four, in addition to the five my's, if you will, David redundantly writes, I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. And David is saying that God gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. David is saying that guilt is determined by God's law and God's teaching, not ours. In verse 4, David is saying that God is the blameless and the righteous judge. 
my guilt and my culpability before God doesn't go away because I or my friends or my cultural context doesn't like his commands. My guilt and my culpability before him does not go away because my counselor or Oprah tells me it's inappropriate to feel guilt and shame. Our guilt and our culpability is not based on what our overbearing parents may say or what our our hypercritical self might say. We will feel too much and too little guilt. In repentance, what matters is what God says. He sets the standard. When we violate it, we're wrong. Second realization, I am without excuse. All right, those of us that have kids, consider what is often the first word after an apology. I was wrong, but. Uh, Please consider the extenuating circumstances. Just the other day, Liam 3 said that. I was like, extenuating circumstances, what a great word. (laughs) Adam said, I was wrong, but the woman. The woman said, I was wrong, but the the serpent. Uh, David is saying, I was wrong, period. I have sinned. No but, no excuses. I mean, how hard is it to just say, I was wrong, and leave it there? I was pretty grumpy uh, with Trisha Friday morning, and on the short drive to work, the Spirit convicted me of such. And so um, when I got to the parking lot at the office, I texted her six words. Uh, I was wrong uh, to be grumpy. And it took all the willpower I could muster to stop typing or to stop thumbing, whatever you call that. It took all of the willpower I could muster to just leave it there because I wanted to type. I was, I was wrong to be grumpy, but, but, but I really slept poorly last night. I was wrong to be grumpy, but this headache, this cold, this, this thing in my throat is really bothering me. And the Bible says that God will not allow temptation to happen in my life beyond what I can bear. And so the Bible tells me that even in my hardship, my sin and my self-centeredness is inexcusable. And so when I repent to Trisha that way, that clues me into the fact that I think that way about my sin with God. And so genuine repentance that reconciles, that brings joy, that changes me, is not about what others have done to me but it's about what I've done to God. So as premarital or married couples come into my office seeking help with conflict, after listening to the two aspiring lawyers and their opening statements, I usually try and start out with a general call to repentance. And I just ask them, where have you sinned in this conflict? Even if your only sin is an unwillingness to forgive, let's call that a sin and let's just write it down. Let's just get on paper uh, what we're willing to acknowledge as our sin against God and let's start from there. It is so incredibly rare for a man or a woman to simply list out their sins without an excuse or a justification or an explanation attached to it. Why did X? But it's because she did Y. Yelling and belittling was how we did it at my house growing up. That's normal. That's almost like my love language. I've heard women and men use that one. Number one, I'm wrong. Number two, I'm without excuse. Number three, I can't fake it nor fix it. Look at the factual statements in verses 16 and 17. Uh, These are realizations in repentance, okay? For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So the sacrifice referenced in the first part of the verse was the most common sacrifice and was offered to celebrate relationship and communion with God. Further, the burnt offering at the end of verse 16 is the offering made to signal commitment to Yahweh, 
And David is saying, if I fake it and act like our relationship is copacetic, you will not delight in it. Uh, Further, he acknowledges that God will not be pleased by a really strong commitment, a promise from him to do more and to do better in the future. Let's say the last thing we did on Tuesday night was our besetting sin. God's Spirit told us to not. God's Spirit provided an out. God's Spirit walked one way, and we did not keep in step with said Spirit. Verse 16 is like waking up to do CBR and starting off as if nothing happened the night before, as if our communion with the Father was unaffected by our sin. Or verse 16 is to feel really guilty and to promise to do better, to beg God for mercy and forgiveness because of the increased effort and the increased sacrifice and the increased commitment we're going to give to him in the future. David is saying, you can't fake it and you can't fix it. Finally, in repentance, I need the realization that my goal is a crushed heart. So while the sacrifices of verse 16 will not delight nor please God, look at verse 17. Again, another statement. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite, which means crushed heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What does David bring to the table in his desire to experience God's mercy and intimacy with him? A play it cool attitude to see if God brings it up? A promise to do better? An excuse for why it's not his fault? A reference to how he was just... uh, Uh, doing, uh, never mind, I won't go there. What does he bring? A heart crushed by his sin against God and God alone. Uh, Look at, at verse four again. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I know what you're thinking. And this is why I told you the long version of 2 Samuel 11 this morning. You're, you're saying, how after that debacle can he possibly say against God only have I sinned? What about Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab the commander, uh, the men who who were killed with Uriah, the the families of the men killed with Uriah? What about the servants that had to carry out all the dirty work? So first, David is not writing a theological paper. He's praying his heart out. But second, when he says, against you alone have I sinned, he is saying that primarily and preeminently he has sinned against God. But third, if you keep reading in verse 4, he says, I've done what is evil in your sight. Now, now this is the fourth word David has used to describe what he did in 1 Samuel 11. Evil is the Hebrew word that emphasizes our injurious effects on others. David is acknowledging that his sin, his evil, has deeply hurt others. But David is realizing that the goal in, in repentance, where, where he's trying to get, where he's trying to take himself, is to a spirit that is broken and to a heart that is crushed. And listen to this. He's trying to get there by thinking about what God watched him do. He's trying to get there by thinking about how God had to watch him use and hurt all of those people. David is trying to take his heart to the place of prayer where he can say, how it grieved you, O God, to see me live that way after you've given me life. How it grieved your heart, O God, to see me, the recipient of election and grace and protection and provision and salvation. How how it grieved your heart to see me not serving and leading others, but objectifying and using others to serve my jollies and my ambition. 
And David is realizing that God will not despise a crushed heart. And through considering what he did to others in the presence of God, David is trying to get his heart to that place. Uh, Next time uh, I preach in the genre of repentance, I'm going to preach yet another psalm of repentance. And we're going to talk about how. We're going to talk about how on this sub point. If God does not despise and if God is merciful to a broken spirit and a crushed heart, how do I get there? Because that's where reconciliation, uh, blessedness, and transformation happens right there. We'll talk about more in a second, actually, but also the next time I preach on the Psalter. Uh, Secondly for today, repentance includes prayers of supplication. So now from a grammatical perspective, we're going to look at some of the commands that David prays. Okay, now listen to this definition of supplication. It's why I picked this English word. According to dictionary.com, supplication means asking or begging for something earnestly. In verses 1 and 2 and 9 through 12, uh, the Hebrew language is filled with imperatives. They're actual commands to God. There is a way in the Hebrew language to politely make a request, but David here is issuing forth command after command after command. Uh, Did did you read the story about the woman who was uh, rescued from the rubble in Bangladesh some 16 days after that clothing factory uh, collapsed and killed hundreds? 16 days she made it. And, And the woman said that she could hear the workers, and she said, I just kept screaming as much as I could, help. Get me out of here. Help. Now think about that. Technically, those are commands. She didn't say, if you don't mind, kind sir, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd be willing to help me. A significant part of biblical repentance is supplication. And supplication is not arrogant command and it is not submissive request. It's the cry for help coming from a desperate person in need of rescue. So after certain realizations, David is driven to desperate supplication. Forgive me, wash me, renew me, uphold me. First, forgive me. Uh, Look at verse 1. A command. Have mercy on me. End of verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. And so kings like David in scrolls kept record of key events that transpired. And so when David is saying blot out, he's begging God to take from the scroll of his life the record of his sin. He's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for it to be as if it never happened. Remember, the definition for the biblical word mercy is to not receive the punishment our actions deserve. Command, have mercy on me. Command, blot out my sins, blot out my transgressions. Second supplication, wash me. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So this verb, to wash thoroughly, it speaks of a vigorous and thorough uh, endeavor uh, often used uh, in this culture and in this language to speak of the washing of garments soiled by by, by various uh, bodily discharges. And David knows that spiritually he's soiled before God and that God in his holiness and glory cannot embrace him and cannot be near him until he's clean. Uh, Look at the commands in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So one commentator wrote this. It's like a mother averting her face from the smell of her baby even while she takes action to clean it up. That's what David is saying. He's saying, please, turn your face. But if you don't make me clean, I'll never come clean. 
And so David begs, forgive me. And then he begs, cleanse me. And then verse 10, he begs, renew me. Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And David knows that even if God forgives him and cleanses him, if God doesn't do something about the source of the sin, he'll be soiled again in no time. So we have a crawl space under our house. And so imagine, as gross as it sounds, the pipe under our toilet breaking and filling the crawl space with sewage. What would you think of me if I only chose to continually clean up the mess and never ask for a fixed pipe? That is like repenting and begging for forgiveness and cleansing, but not renewal. The Bible teaches that from our heart flows forth everything. Words, actions, emotions, intentions. And David is begging God, with the miraculous and the marvelous power you used at creation, create in me a clean heart so that sin and soiling don't flow forth from me anymore. Further, look at the end of verse 10, renew. It literally means to put pieces together. It means to reassemble the broken. Now think, what's the goal in repentance? A broken spirit and a broken heart. Why? Because God is in the business of piecing back together things that are broken. Again, this is going to be part of that next sermon that I preach on repentance. But just hear this from now. This is the quote of a commentator I hope to come back to. Being broken is not a sufficient condition to being renewed, but it's a necessary condition to being renewed. Being broken is not a sufficient condition to being renewed, but it is a necessary condition to being renewed. Finally, last supplication. Last command uh, that we're going to look at this morning. He says, uphold me. Look at verses 11 and 12. Uh, David has learned the doctrine of dependence. He knows that he is always in need of God's spirit to fill, to lead, to guide, to empower. That if God blots it out, cleans up the mess, and reassembles the pipe, he's not done. Verse 11 Cast me away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's a long conversation that I can't get into right now, but David is not implying here that you can lose your salvation. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is almost always spoken of in the context of God's presence with a leader. God's power and God's wisdom and God's guidance for the leader of a people And so, for example, in 1 Samuel 16, it specifically says that God's Spirit left Saul and came upon David. Earlier in 1 Samuel, the Spirit of God would come and go from Saul as Saul would try to lead. And David knows that he's the ordained king of Israel. And he is basically praying here, I don't want to be king unless you're present with me, in me, fulfilling me, filling me, and upholding me. And so I guess the illustration would be to take the toilet out and to connect the renewed pipes to a purified water system. To not just put the pipes back together, but to fill them with something new and life-giving. And the Bible continues that doctrine to speak of that being God himself and the Holy Spirit. Finally, Psalm 51 shows us that repentance includes not just prayers of realization and supplication, but also prayers of expectation. Again, I know this a lot. I know we're flying over huge topics. Again, I I think this is one of those sermons we should go back and listen to again. 
But my goal in teaching this morning is to basically accomplish this, to, to lead you to the truth that repentance is huge. Repentance brings intimacy with the Father, blessedness or happiness. It brings transformation to our lives. Repentance, I believe, is the most undertaught yet most critically needed doctrine in all of the Bible. How did the gospel writers summarize the, the, the ministry of Jesus when he was preaching? You have a sermon, a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. You have other sermons in the other gospels. But when summarizing that ministry, it was two words. Repent, believe. Repentance is huge. And, and repentance is comprised of three types of prayers. Prayers of realization, prayers of supplication, and then prayers of expectation. We're going to look at all the times where David uses the future tense in this prayer. In Psalm 51, David references things God will do in the future in verses 6 through 8 and things he will do in the future in verses 13 through 15. Look at verses uh, 6 through 8. These are things that David expects God to do. And I realize that the ESV translates these verbs as imperatives, as commands. All the commentators are going to tell you uh, these are very clearly future tense verbs. Okay, so follow along. I'm going to give you a little more literal reading. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you will teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You will purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You will wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You will make me hear joy and gladness. The bones you have broken will rejoice. They will dance. In repentance, David has realized that only God can save him. And David has begged God to save him. And now David fully expects God to do exactly that. Further, if you look down at verses 13 through 15, David prayers his expectations for himself based on the fact that he expects God to save him. Look at verse 13. Then. That is a huge word. Because think about it, in false repentance, we're tempted to make promises to God in an effort to get him to forgive us and save us. But in genuine repentance, we make promises that are dependent upon his salvation. Not to get them, not to get his salvation, but because we know he's going to save us. Verses 9 through 12, hide, blot out, create, renew, stay with me, restore, uphold, then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, command, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue, future, will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, command, open my lips and my mouth, future, will declare your praise. And so in his repentance, what, what is David's expectation in regards to his activities in the future? evangelism, and worship. First, he expects his response to God's powerful salvation to be this, the telling of other sinners about that salvation. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. What are God's ways? Mercy, grace, forgiveness, cleansing, filling, this is why he says at the end of that verse, and sinners will return or repent to you. He doesn't say sinners will obey you. He says sinners will be reconciled to you. So first, evangelism. 
but also passionate, completely engaged worship. In in verses 14 and 15, David references every body part associated with speech. My tongue will sing loudly of your righteousness. My lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David is not saying, God, I've blown it big time, and to make up for it, I'm going to do the two things that Presbyterians stink at. I'm going to worship, and I'm going to do evangelism. You know, he comes to to realize that he's in such a desperate place that once God saves him and restores him, he will not be able to do anything other than tell the people about it and invite them into it and loudly worship God for it. Now, I would want you to note this about repentance. These are three voices, if you will, that are interwoven together throughout Psalm 51. I think that it's good to think of them like perspectives or aspects on uh, repentance. This is a man emptying out his heart before the Lord, and I think that genuine prayers of repentance, the prayers that we pray that reconcile and bless and transform, I think they sound like this. Realization, supplication, expectation, threaded together into a tapestry. All of these realities must be in the heart. But I do think there's a flow to it. I think there, there, there's a way of getting to the place of repentance. There's a way of getting yourself ready to pray. You have to come to certain realizations that drive you to desperate supplications that will eventually lead you to confident expectations. I want to conclude this way. Uh, how, how are David's expectations not presumptuous? Uh, even rude, you might say. How can David, after all he did in 2 Samuel 11, expect God to forgive and cleanse and renew and stay with him to bless him? How can he expect um, uh, all of that uh, just because he begged God to do it, and especially after acknowledging in his repentance that it was all his fault? Look at verses 1 and 2. David tells us the ground of his confidence at the very beginning. Have mercy on me, better translated grace. Have grace on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David is saying three things about God and he's saying three things about himself. All in verses 1 and 2. And all six of those words are found in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is that place in the Bible where God shares his name and he shares the depths of his name and he shares the core of his essence. He tells Moses, at my core, I'm a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And then in verse 7, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And so the foundation for David's repentance is God. It's God's name. It's God's essence. It's God's character. God says, I don't do irreligion where we act like we don't sin. And I don't do religion where you think you can make up for it. I only do grace and repentance. That's how we do it around here. And I know that this is scandalous. Grace is scandalous. The gospel is scandalous. But if we have a problem with with David, that he, in fact, Psalm 32 was forgiven, was washed, was blessed, was made happy, was empowered to teach and to worship if we're scandalized by that. We're not scandalized by David and what we perceive to be presumption. We're scandalized by the very essence of God. 
We're scandalized by the declaration of himself as gracious and merciful and loving. We're scandalized by the fact that he says, at my core, I forgive transgression, iniquity, and sin. No matter what we have done, we have not done anything comparable to David. And David is saying, my repentance is based on that and that alone, and he is inviting us into the same place. But when we say payment has to be made, death in this case has to happen. You can't lust, abuse, lie, murder, order the unjust killing of dozens of men and not pay. You can't just be forgiven and cleansed and blessed and loved and accepted after doing that. And when we say that, God says, I agree with you. More directly, Jesus says, I agree with you. Payment has to be made. Shunning Dishonoring, mocking, disgracing, shaming, that has to happen in this case. If it doesn't happen, God is not a God worth following. We can't just blot it out as if it never happened. Friends, Jesus agreed with us so much, he agreed to become a man and die on the cross. On the cross, God's grace and mercy and steadfast love was made known and climactically expressed. When the perfect Jesus, never lazy, never lusting, never raping, never committing adultery, never abusing power, never murdering, the one who loved perfectly died because our sins were blotted out from our scroll and written into his. Jesus was victimized, he was murdered, He was shamed, he was grieved, he was filled with agony as if he had victimized, murdered, shamed, and filled others with agony. When we're scandalized by repentance, we're scandalized by the very essence of God and the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your work on the cross and the blood that you shed was enough for David. And we thank you that whatever we have done in this life or whatever we want to do, to do that we didn't have the courage to do, we thank you that you have paid for that on the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you were perfect and sinless and you allowed to have our sins written into your scroll and then you died for them. Give us your Holy Spirit, we pray. Do not take your spirit from us, but fill us and convict us and release us and transform us and empower us. God, we pray that you would give the gifts of repentance and faith. We are scared of them. We are scared of what they will do to us. Uh, We are scared of where they will take us. But God, give us the faith to follow you. Give us this gift of repentance, we pray.